the aesthetic experience is something that everybody gets to have, like food, like air. Several of the things that got African-Americans through slavery was art. It was survival. It was emotional survival. Art is underrated. You can get away with saying all kinds of things under the guise of art. Art works whether you mean for it to work or not. Hey you, welcome to the Art and Happiness Project the podcast about the transformative powers of art. I'm Agathe Westad, and in this show, I speak with artists from all categories, painters, musicians, dancers, actors, but also business leaders and academics. We tell moving and inspiring stories of how art and creativity help us find meaning, improve our relationships, and increase our well-being, whoever we are and wherever we're from. Merci and enjoy. Can art help us break class, race, and gender gaps? I spoke to Sherry Parks from the Maryland Institute College of Art, known as MICA. Sherry is a noted public intellectual and academic, and her expertise is ordinary aesthetics, aka art that just about everyone engages with all the time. Music, dance, crafts, you name it, even TV. She studies the way in which people find and create meaning and beauty in their everyday lives with specific emphasis on race, gender, social class and sexuality. Art is to her the key to bridging societal gaps. I loved speaking with Sherry. She's brilliant, she's profound, courageous, and she's also a very straight talker, which I love. We discussed the fact that art is integrated into our daily lives and not a separate inaccessible entity. We talked about art as a means of emotional survival, in particular for impoverished minority communities. Also, how it provides concealed means of resistance to oppression in all eras. And also the fine line between cultural exchange and appropriation. This conversation to me was really challenging, enriching and humbling at the same time. I, I learned a lot and I really hope that you will too. Let's go. Hi, Sherry. Hi. It's lovely to speak with you. Thank you so much for speaking with me. Thank you for having me. Um, so I'll start by, it's, it's about 3 p.m. in the afternoon uh, at the time we were recording. I wanted to ask you how, if at all, you've engaged with art today. Oh, well, I work at an art college at the Maryland Institute College of Art, so it's part of my workday. Um, I've talked to artists who are going for um, fellowships and looked at their art. Um, we've talked about murals and looked at murals. Um, in my own life, um, I, I read a bit this morning just to get my, my head straight, um, I didn't happen to look at any TV this morning. Um, there's all. You there's think you heard mu music? Yeah, and music comes in and out of my life. Yes. <laughs> um, I'm asking you this question because you you specialize in ordinary aesthetics and and particularly the, the way in which uh, people find and create meaning and beauty in their everyday lives. So, what is everyday art or ordinary aesthetics? Well, often when people say art, they mean art with a capital A, and they mean museum or academy or gallery art. Um, and most people have everyday experiences with the aesthetics. We have aesthetic experiences. You were just asking me about several. I mean, music is kind of the backdrop for a lot of people's lives. And, and we make aesthetic decisions all the time. I mean, I, I once was talking to a musician who was a professional French horn um, uh, musician. And 
we were talking about his kitchen. And I said, oh, and you have French horns in the carpet. And he said, what are you talking about? And I said, see, and you know, those circles that touch each other, they make, they make the bell. And he said, you know, I designed the kitchen, but I hadn't realized I'd done that. But now that you pointed out, that's exactly what I did. And so, you know, when we look at art, it's often a type of play and we don't think, I am looking at art now, and now I am thinking about the art. We just bring joy and meaning into our lives, and we don't think about it. So that, how do we, how do we, you know, what is the first date before COVID? Going to the movies or going to a concert? You know, how do people sing their children to sleep? You know, how do they get their children to sleep? They read, but probably sing or play music. And all during the day, we are making decisions like that, and even how families manage time and space. Uh, when I was teaching, I'm an administrator now, so I'm not teaching, I would say, so when you were 13 and you were angry with your parents, you're biologically adult, but nowhere near socially or economically uh, independent, what would you do? And they would say, I would go to my room and slam the door. And then what? You turn on, you turn up your music. At what volume? As loud as they will tolerate. What genre? Whatever makes them crazy. Um, mm-hmm. And and families do that all the time. They manage. They come together um, to watch television. I have young women whose favorite shows as a small child were whatever their dad was watching that that they could watch because that's when they got their cuddle time in. So we use the aesthetic in all kinds of ways, often in those secondary kind of ways. We don't often go to the concert and sit and just listen to music or go to the gallery and just look at art. Um, the vast population, you know, and this is unfortunate from my perspective, but the, the vast majority of the population doesn't go to museums. Right. Whatever the aesthetic is in their lives is what they see around them and what they bring around them, and that's what I mean. You've kind of hinted already at um, music being a way to process emotions. Um, what's the, the the global role of uh, of, of everyday art, um, if you can well, pinpoint it? At its most basic is how we bring in meaning and joy or other emotions, because it's not certainly not always joyful, or or what's called interest, which is more than just the way we think of interest. We use ordinary art, like I said, to come together, either in big groups or, or little groups. Um, we we use it as a way to be to be together. You know, what is really interesting is that every culture, every culture that we know of, has some version of art. It seems to be that, and the and the spiritual seem to be the universal impulses. And so it is also a type of expression. You know, we've been talking about art mostly as consumers, but you know, from you know, certainly preschool, uh, little people are making art. They're drawing their lives. This is a mask, and I made it with feathers. 
pom-poms and paper. And what I did was cut out holes so if you put it on your face, you could see through it. And so it becomes a type of a pictorial expression. Our songs become a different way of expression. So it is both a conveyance, but also an mm. expression. Um, and I don't know about you, but when I was in, in middle school, I got bad poetry from guys, you know, and it was their way yeah. of, of courting. So it it is a it is like a fork. It's something we use every day, but one that brings us, and I'm using the aesthetic experience because we're not always chasing joy. Sometimes we're, we're chasing fear or disgust even. And so I don't want to just assume that this is all about joy. But we use it to bring things into our lives or to convey things in our lives. And I mean, you work with and and advocate for African-Americans and, and call it social cl classes. And you, you mentioned to me earlier, they that population spend more money than average on aesthetics and that they also don't dissociate art from everyday life. I mean, you gave the example of museums. Not everybody goes to museum. It doesn't mean that they don't engage with art. Is that is that unique and specific to that population? Well, I mean, there's some similarities with the Latinx population. Um, so certainly when we were talking, I, I said that several of the things that got African-Americans through slavery, I mean, there were food ways, mm -hmm. there was spirituality, but it was art. I mean, all through art, I mean, all through, you, you see people singing and dancing. That's where the stereotype of them being happy came from. But it was survival. It was emotional survival. And African-Americans, you're right, spend about twice per capita across social class on, on aesthetic experiences. A lot of that is music, but it, it isn't only music. And for instance, African-American families, there's very little children's music for African-American children. Um, very early on, Black families are, and their, their children are listening to the same music. Back when people bought CDs, people would buy a CD for the kid and a CD for themselves because they didn't want jelly on their CD. <laughs> you know, uh, you get you get some of that in, in the Latinx community, as I said, but not to the same degree. And it's still a type of of emotional survival. I mean, I mean, hip hop is now kind of the backdrop for American commercial life, but at its base, Hip hop was a was a cry for uh, to talk about racism and talk about all kinds of things. And I'm not going to sit here and defend all of hip hop. I'm a feminist, so I can't. Right. Um, but but it is a way of saying things. Um, African Americans are one of the last groups that make up stories as entertainment, making up stories for their children. Um, black men in locker rooms will do what they call lying, but they're, they're, everybody knows that they, that is, is a story that's been exaggerated and that's part of the fun. Um, you know, as an African American, I can say this, you get very interesting names from African American, uh, for African American children. And that is an aesthetic expression. I mean, the names, even, even if you How wonder so? where they get that, they often sing. I mean, the syllables and the, and the pronunciation often has a rhythm to it. And so those are, you know, examples of people bringing the aesthetic into every aspect of their lives. Foodways, African-American foodways are, you know, really important to the, to the culture of this country. And that is in many ways an aesthetic experience. The food has to be pretty as well. It's super, it's super interesting because I, I, from what you're saying, it also sounds like 
art is is pervasive in 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 this culture um and at the same time i would venture that maybe those most of those people don't consider themselves as artists um and so it it goes to an important point and a question i wanted to ask you which is do you need to consider yourself as an artist or even even to have talent in order to benefit from that creativity so i will answer the the last question first no i mean what is talent and what counts as talent and even what counts as art changes we've been doing some work with graffiti artists in baltimore and and the elders which means they're like 35 right um have said <laughs> Jesus, that makes me feel bad <laughs> have said well you know the the history of MICA, the academy and the history of graffiti, they're the same people. They were MICA students during the day, but at night they were illegal graffiti artists. So it was actually the same people. And we've witnessed the, the, the street art and street art and graffiti are not actually the same thing, but all of that art that has been done outside is much more um, revered even. You know, think of what happened with you know, Banksy's work recently, um, where that used to be outlaw, outlaw art, and now it is not. So that what counts as capital A art changes over time, and even what, what counts as talent over time changes. But, but, I mean, art therapy suggests that you don't have to be talented in order for it to bring something to your life. And I'm thinking about my friends at Philadelphia Mule Arts, and they've had storefronts. And in those storefronts, And they did for a long time have one in the Kensington neighborhood. And people who know Philadelphia know that Kensington has, has uh, open air drug problems. And so in their storefront, which, which they have recently had to close for, you know, reasons that lots of things closed, um, they had professional artists, but they also had people who would come in off the street and, and people would say, there's somebody over in the corner coloring. And coloring, like with crayons. Mm. And that's what that person needed to do that day is, is to color, to calm themselves, to go to a different place. And so what counts as talent, what counts as art as, actually isn't all that important. Now, I'm not here to suggest that, you know, technique has no place. It clearly does. But particularly the making of art can do the work because art works whether you mean for it to work or not. Um, art works that. to calm the soul or give you a chance to practice dangerous ideas, whether there's a program that tells you that that's what it's going to do or not. I love that because it's not about talent and it's probably also not about beauty. It's also meant to to show and express sometimes emotional pain. You talked about emotional survival. Um, it's hard to talk about uh, African-American in the U.S. right now without 
mentioning police violence, I I find um, mm-hmm. on this this play that has been put together by the Theatre of War, uh, which, if I'm not mistaken, is based in New York City. Um, and the play was Antigone. Do you say Antigone in English? Am I butchering this? In already? English, we say Antigone. Antigone. Okay. Um, Antigone in Ferguson. And that was a way um, for African-American to process um, the trauma of the violence and actually put it under the, an artistic form that was in the end aesthetically pleasing. Can you, I, I think you're pretty familiar with the play. Can you talk about this? Yes, yes. Um, I used to work at the University of Maryland and we brought it there and then we brought it to Baltimore. And in Baltimore, it was very interesting. We um, brought it to Coppin State University, which is an HBCU. Um, the audience was about half white um, and about half black. And um, what was very interesting, and, and if people don't know the play, it is uh, basically the tr- the original Antigone, but with Ferguson superimposed on it. So there there are police, and in the original production, there were actual Ferguson police in in the play. Really? Can I say so? In, in case people don't know about Antigone, so it's it's a it's a Greek play, um, which I mean I, I'm not going to do the whole story, but it, it, it's essentially the at, at the core is the idea that uh, a people is together united in the conviction that something is wrong and they are against the political power in place. And the question is, um, how do we avoid the use of violence at the end of the day? How do we avoid, avoid the use of violence in order to, to, to gain um, visibility and to make our, our rights recognized by the power in place, right? So it's it's a very current um, topic and it's, you know, it's it's a Greek play. So maybe an African-American might think this has nothing to do with me and it turns out it does, right? And that's why it's interesting. Sorry, I just wanted exactly. to give a little bit of background here. No, no, that's, that's important. That's the host job. <laughs> um, and so um, I was able to watch it with this mixed audience. And as you just said, you know, African-Americans, many of whom were working class, follow the language, which is it's not an easy play. Follow the language and were very engaged and asked many, many questions and, and immediately understood the importance to their day-to-day lives. And, and there were people in tears because to see your reality in a universal form like that, that this mm-hmm. is an, you know, an ancient form is important. It's important to see yourself in context. Um, and I'm, I'm quoting a young African-American man from a different context, but a, a very similar situation where they saw another group say, oh, it's not just us. And understanding the universality of brutality, and in this case, you know, of power, of political power in Antigone, I think is, is really very important. Because it it reminds you that you are not particular that that all these things happen and people have survived it before or lived through it before. Where is the power in re-killing the dead? You must bury the son of Oedipus and atone for your errors. But what divine law did I transgress? If the gods think this is right, then I defer to their judgment. But if these people are doing wrong in the eyes of the gods, then may they experience nothing less than what they unjustly do to me. City of Thebes? 
land of my ancestors. I'm being led away to my death without delay. Citizens, rulers of this country, witness my unjust suffering at the hands of these men for showing reverence for what is right and what is sacred. And around police brutality, there have been so many aspects of, of that. Certainly, um, and there are people who are now, when we were talking a minute ago about street art, there are people who are beginning to collect the the murals that people have have done in, in many cities um, and and now consider that art and the different emotional expressions of, of people as they respond to police violence. Um, there are African-American artists, and this has been documented by Kalama Young, who is a Baltimore um, scholar who has interviewed African-American artists, visual artists, traditional painters and other kinds who are consciously watching the videos that are so difficult for us to watch and absorbing that pain and reproducing it in a way that may also be beautiful, um, but that allows the viewer to contemplate the police violence in a safer way. And that's what art does. It gives us a safe place to look at things. And African-American artists have been doing that forever. There are African-American quilts that were considered crazy quilts until it was Gladys Fry who um, began to argue that there was a there was an artistic intelligence at work. And think about it, if you were a slave who was making a quilt and putting it on the clothesline so that slaves who were trying to escape knew where they should be going, you didn't want the master to be able to, quote, read it. Hmm. Um, and so here was the aesthetic. It was pretty. People slept on it. Um, and yet it was conveying essential information. And so that idea of meaning embedded in the aesthetic, I think is common to all cultures, but it's particularly acute in places like the United States when you're African-American where information had to be coded. And certainly, you know, I grew up during the time of funk music, which was happy dance music until you listen to the lyrics. Um, and then it was extremely political. So that idea of of giving information and joy at the same time is something um, that often happens. I was just having a conversation earlier today about the juxtaposition of the sacred and the profane in African American music. So when that when that rapper comes up at the Grammys, and you know I'm a feminist, so and I, like I said, I'm not going to defend the misogyny and homophobia that is sometimes there. But you'll have people who have those lyrics and they thank God. Those two things exist together. Mm -hmm. And art allows you to do that where you couldn't do that in a church, for instance, you know. And so it allows that freedom that is essential. Is it because also, I mean, from what you're saying, what, what comes to me is that art is underrated, by the power oh, yes. that be, right? It's it's underfunded. It's not prioritized politically. I mean, we can have a whole debate about this. I would love to, but unfortunately, it's not the point right now. But it's underrated. And because it is underrated, it is a very good means of communicating um, ideas, thoughts, uh, and kind of undercover. Yes, 
Yes, I mean, you you can get away with saying all kinds of things and discussing things, making plans even, um, under the guise of art, and, and, and you get away with it. Art provides a safe place for the discussion of otherwise dangerous ideas. I mean, that's part of its utility uh, that, that it allows people to do that. And yes, art is very much underrated. And at some level, uh, people like me would like for that not to happen. But as you point out, that is in some ways part of its utility. Things that you cannot say to someone's face, that you cannot say in other aspects of the public sphere, you can say in the theater. Uh, because it's, quote, just art. I love this. Um, f lots of food for thought. I, I want to go back to, you mentioned quilt, uh, which is not the first art form that comes to mind when you say mm -hmm. art, especially you talked about art with a big A at the beginning of the conversation. Um, craft is a, a huge component of everyday art, right? Um, knitting, weaving, quilting, so... Um, textile, art, or, I don't know, pottery, you name it. Um, do you draw a line between arts and craft in your work? Um, I, I think there's a reason to draw a line for almost political with a small p line. You know, the, mm. you know we have great colleagues uh, at the American Craft Council. And so crafters and makers for reasons of organizing, that's what I mean by political, th that's important. But I, no, actually, I don't. And, I, and we were talking about quilts just a second ago. And, you know, Faith Ringgold is an artist mm. who quilts. Stephen Towns is an artist who quilts. He paints, too. He's, I mean, he's got amazing technique yeah. in both. And the Albers. And so, yeah. Right. And you know, the, 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 the medium does not, I think, there are lots of people who would disagree with me, certainly. I don't think the medium defines whether something does the work of art. And notice the way I said it, the work of art in the ways that we've been describing it, which is you know, different than the way many people think of art. Mm. Exactly. Um, and so, no, I don't. Um, you mentioned ceramics. And actually, we at in Baltimore, Micah has a contract right now to create public art in a community that used to be a housing project. Um, and the whole idea is to take a trauma-informed approach because poverty is a type of trauma. Um, and one of the things that we're hoping to do is uh, a memorial quilt of ceramics so that people can sit and either draw or transfer photographs themselves or work with one of our, our artists Um, and, and then it will, those squares will be, those ceramic tiles, which are, I'm using the quilt term squares, will be arranged according to an African-American quilt aesthetic. Um, and then there'll be other tiles that are around the memorial tiles, which are actually, anybody would say, is art. So an mm -hmm. artist will sit there and, and make things on these quilts. And they'll, they'll be fired and arranged in, as part of an amphitheater. Now, what makes that art in this example that nobody would question, is the placement. It will be a large visual display of grief. So we're safe there, right? But then we're taking two maker arts. We're taking ceramic tiles, and then we're taking quilts and using them as the medium. So I'm interested in the work that does. This is the memorial quilt. The community said we want our grief to be shown. We don't want everything to be happy, pretty. We, we, 
we have pain. We want that to be seen. So it is that, and I, I you know, this is an expression of their pain in a form that ser- will serve them over time. And it's public. That's probably an important component. There's, there's two things, right? There's the beautification of uh, places, usually in less affluent cities or neighborhoods. There is a degradation of the public space. And so there's, a, there's an, an element of, even if it's through expressing pain, it's a, also a, a form of beautification of the space, which is, is oh, good yeah. for people. And then the second thing is that it's accessible to everyone, right? That's the beauty of public art. And that, that surely that, that plays a really important role. I know you've done a lot of work around that. Well, I mean, yes, it is public, meaning that it's also free. Right. That, exactly. that anybody can, can do that. And so that begins to break away at class. And the idea that working class people can have beauty actually is more revolutionary than people assume. They assume that beauty is something that comes with affluence. Um, there are neighborhoods in California that are that are working class that are more beautiful than any middle class mm-hmm. neighborhood because of the the open air art that is there, and that in and of itself is important. I do think that aesthetic experience is something that everybody gets to have, like food, like air, like clean water. And I know not everybody gets those things, but they should. And so, yeah, I'm concerned. You know, we went back to the is art undervalued? I think yes, it's undervalued, but it also is is necessary for a certain quality of life. And you're right that we very much with public art installations are trying to raise the quality of life for people. And and as you also said, they often are alienated from the outside. The outside can be alienating. And and pulling art brings into those spaces, we think, we know actually in some other areas that it will bring people to those spaces and their relationship to the outside becomes different and therefore to each mm-hmm. other. That's an interesting idea, the idea that of that separatedness, which is obviously very, very present um, between between communities and, and, and social classes in general. And so I guess it leads me to maybe a, a naive question. Um, but when we're talking about the right of everyone to to beauty and to art, and therefore the idea of making that accessibility, because I think those, goes, those go hand in hand, how do we talk about making art accessible without making it, quote unquote, kind of a, a white person's problem of just access to a museum, right? How... how how do we talk about this in a better way? Well, I mean, I, th- I think it goes back to our, our earlier conversation about museum art, that um, if we think about how do we integrate art into the lives of ordinary people, that actually, to me, is an artificial question. I mean, it's not your question. Right. I mean, it's a question that's in the field um, because you, people are often thinking of gallery art, of museum art. And there are, we, we don't even know, and actually you hinted at this earlier, we don't even know how many artists there are because there are many, many people, many, many more people who make art who have never been to the academy and who have day jobs mm. so they don't answer artists on the census. And so since many people, and, and we were talking about African-Americans, but I also brought Latinx, the same is true for working class white people, um, where their their art experience is part of their day-to-day lives. You can watch how, and actually I taught a graduate class once where every student took a, a different marginalized art form and traced it from the marginalized group into the mainstream 
and saw what happens to it. So it's not just racial groups, um, fashion and 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 the trans community, for instance, um, um, LBGTQA and and fashion is important and food ways are important. And so they're, they're example after example after example of something being created at the margins. Give me an example of that, like an example of an art form traced back to the mainstream. That, that's really interesting. Okay, so I, I'm, you know, fashion is is really important. Um, and so uh, fashion, couture fashion, and this may sound weird until you actually look at it, draws from working class culture. Big chains now are being produced by by elite mm. jewelers, right? Um, the 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 clothing trends often start in the gay community and then get co-opted. And so by the time a trend, um, big shoulders right now, you know, in 2022 are, are coming in for women. Where did that big shoulder look come from most recently? It came from the gay community. And, and so, and so in a year or two, the, the trans and gay communities will make something else because by the time it gets to the mall, it doesn't, do what it was doing for them before, before of expressing their difference. And so over and over and over um, does that happen. Um, in the late 60s, uh, what had been called race music, it was black music, was then um, white teenagers would come and listen to it. There's a famous story of Elvis Presley standing off stage watching Black artists and then imitating them, mm. and there's 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 lots of that because it's easier to go for affluent people to go into our our other privileged people to go into the margins than vice versa, right? Wait, I, I have a question which I'm sure is going to be a super controversial, um, but I think we're, we're kind of tiptoeing around the, the theme, which is which is cultural appropriation, right? To to some extent, or at least an exchange of culture, and so. It's been painted for reasons that I understand in, in the light of, you know, something that needs to be at least paid a lot of attention to when, when people are doing it, especially when it comes to from the dominating kind of white affluent class taking that for commercial purposes. But you're talking about cultural appropriation maybe in a different form. And, and it strikes me could be beneficial, right? Because it's about spreading the knowledge of a culture and of art forms beyond the communities in order to create exchange and mutual understanding. In that way, isn't cultural appropriation sometimes a good thing? Well, you know, it's, it's interesting because it's, it's a difficult phrase. Right. Um, I don't, I don't tiptoe around it. I think it, it happens. Um, I think it, it becomes difficult because it's the black kid playing the violin, a cultural appropriation. So it has, in my mind, it has everything to do with power. Mm who has power to take and, and control because the black kid in the symphony is still, you know, rare, right? And is not, in most cases, the maestro. Um, I think cultural sharing could be, can be very useful if the meaning comes with it. You know, if there's hip hop selling you your highly sugared breakfast cereal, no. No, nope. <laughs> that doesn't doesn't bring anything with it. But if you bring all the richness and meaning with it, yes, that 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 helps you understand that group more. Uh, that helps you identify the commonalities more than than yes. But often, not not all the time, but often what the mainstream culture does is kind of shake it and use it until it's empty 
and then and, and sanitize because right. now they're fresh faced dreadlock people selling breakfast cereal. And, and, and that doesn't sound right. Do they bring the angst, the pain, um, the violence of hip hop with them? Of course not. So it's probably about the word appropriation, right? It's like how right. exchange versus appropriation. Um, so with the time we have left, I want to ask you some final questions, a little bit more personal, if you allow me. The first one is, do you have a, a memory where art helped you process something difficult or get through a, d a difficult time? Oh, difficult times. Well, yeah, I'm the author of a book, Fierce Angels, a couple of editions. And it was my attempt originally to explain myself to me about a role I was playing where people were coming to me and asking me to do hard things for them. And I, I gradually learned that. And one of the most poignant images for me There, there are lots and they're in the book, is Italian-Americans in the early 20th century on the Lower East Side marching through the streets with Black Madonnas. Because mm. that, to me, explains so much about the expectations that were being, that still are placed on me to be fierce for strangers because Black women are expected to be heroic and to carry pain And it is those, I mean, I wrote, you know, you know, tens of thousands of words, but it's those photographs that I, I think begin to show mm. and explain a role that I still play. Uh, I'm still called upon to play. And, and so I, that is in many ways the, the more poignant art. Thank you. That's a, that was a very good answer. Um, If you were, you've already answered this maybe a little bit, but if you were an artist yourself, what would you be? Oh, I, you know, I, I do write. So you're a writer at heart. Yeah, started out long ago. Um, and so I am a writer. But, you know, visually, I, you know, I, sh I, I would... I would love to draw better. And I keep saying when I have time, you know, because I'm at an art school, I can take art classes, um, that, that yeah. I will do that. Um, so visual art as well. Lastly, what is art for in one word? Art is, well, one word? Ooh, can I have? Yeah, I know. Sorry. Oh. That's the rule. Art is meaning. Thank you so much, Sherry. Thank you. That's all for today, guys. Thank you so much for listening. And I really hope you enjoyed the episode. If you did, don't hesitate to let me know with a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. And if you're not the review type, it's all good. There's a lot of other ways to help. For example, you could tell a friend or two about us. It'll help us a lot. And who knows, it might even help them. Thanks for your time and see you soon for a new episode of the Art and Happiness Project. Bye-bye.